Hello, everyone, and welcome to First Film, the podcast where we discuss famous directors and their feature-length directorial debuts. My name is Baden. And I'm Kyle. And today we're going to be talking about James Gunn. He's got a new film out, Guardians 3. Super excited to talk about him and his debut film, Slither. That's right. So for new listeners of the podcast, the way this works is we start by talking about the director themselves, some of their career and their filmography. Then we discuss the debut film. So in this case, we'll be talking about Slither. And then we dig into the behind the scenes of that debut film, try and piece together how it was made and what we can learn about the director from that. We give you a whole history on the director so that when you leave this episode, you feel confident in your knowledge. You can pass a test on this, for sure. If you're writing a test on James Gunn this week, be sure to let us know how we helped. And if you want to pass that test, make sure to leave a like, subscribe, and follow us at First Film Potty, P-O-D-D-Y on TikTok, Instagram, and on YouTube to never miss an episode, and make sure to follow us on all your podcasting platforms. If you do that, we'll be sure to to show up to your teacher's house and bludgeon them until they give you an A. <laughs> and if you have any suggestions, thoughts, or general discussion, make sure to email us at firstfilmpotty, P-O-D-D-Y, at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast, make sure to tell your friends as it's the best way we get new listeners. Absolutely. But that being said, Baden, let's dive into... James Gunn. So James Gunn was born in 1966 in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, many people know about his brother, Sean, who's been in a bunch of his films. He yes. actually has five siblings. Whoa. Uh, he has a master's of the fine arts from Columbia University. But honestly, none of that is as interesting as Gunn's extracurricular activities. So oh. I'm going to start off by talking about the stuff he's done outside of filmmaking, because there's a whole bunch. Okay. So first off, he started making 8mm zombie films when he was only 12 years old with his siblings, which is very impressive. He's very young. He wrote political cartoons in university oh. so I guess that's where he got some of his like dry wit and stuff like that yeah, yeah. he also started a band okay. called the icons I'm guessing they didn't live up to their name no not at all <laughs> not at all I literally could not find any trace of their music but yeah he was the vocalist of this band actually oh. and he also plays instruments or at least I assume he does because he has composed music for other films since such as Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo 2 um, not to jump ahead too much I just have to list off some of the other the non-director stuff he did. Okay. In 2000, he wrote and published a novel called The Toy Collector. Oh. It's about a guy who steals drugs from the hospital that he works at as an orderly okay. to fund a toy addiction. I guess in the vein of like the guy from Toy Story 2. Who's like, <laughs> yeah. He needed to get his, you know, signature Buzz and Woody. Yeah. <laughs> from the there toy. is something about like collecting toys that can be kind of creepy. Yeah. But I believe this was pulled from real life because James Gunn worked as a hospital orderly before writing his first screenplay. He had a bunch of of like weird gigs. He was also a bar musician. I also saw somewhere that he was a quarry worker. What? The bar musician and the hospital orderly I could find like other sources for. The quarry worker one I only found in one place. Do you think in Guardians, you know, Nowhere, mm -hmm. how it's an entirely a mining planet? Do you think oh, that was based off his real life? from real life. <laughs> what if he was the entertainer for the quarry workers? He was Like the he was there, he was the musician. And, and the quarry workers, they'd be deep down in like level 18. <laughs> he has his bass guitar at the entrance with like the wall 
all amp. That's what like, I'm saying. I mean, I don't know much about sound, but wouldn't uh, wouldn't mine shafts be incredibly acoustic? <laughs> yeah, but they'd also be prone to collapse from the oh, vibrations. Yo. <laughs> There's like a different timeline where James Gunn like rocked out at a coal mine and it collapsed. There's just a headline that says Gunn, killer of 12 men. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a confusing title. <laughs> a confusing title. Yeah, so he also wrote the story for a video game called Lollipop Chainsaw. That sounds familiar, actually. Um, let me show you the uh, poster for this. Yeah, I've seen this before, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah so yeah. the cover is like scantily clad woman with a chainsaw. That about sums it up. So yeah, he's done just a bunch of non-film related stuff in his life. But the main thing we're here to talk about, it is first film, not first other things. <laughs> um, so we're here to talk about his filmmaking. And James Gunn started out not as a director, but as a writer. Gunn began working at a place called Troma Entertainment in 1995. For those of you who don't know, Troma is still around today. And they've been producing low budget films for nearly 50 years now. Wow. Uh, most of them are in the kind of horror comedy category. And they kind of pride themselves on being edgy and shocking. So like their slogan in 2014 was 40 years of disrupting media. Okay. Right. And disruptive, that's like a buzzword that could mean just about anything. Yeah. But in this case, I believe it means like doing stuff that bigger studios will not do. They've actually been a starting point for a few other big names like J.J. Abrams. Whoa. So his first film gig was actually writing the music for a trauma film. Crazy to see his name here. Samuel L. Jackson. What? One of his first gigs was in Death by Temptation, which was mysteriously directed by one James Bond III. The jokes write themselves. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio. Wow. David Baranaz. A bunch of other people all kind of got their start at trauma. All big well-known names to this day. Right, right. Gum was taken under the wing of one Lloyd Kaufman, one of Troma's founders, and he wrote the film Tromeo and Juliet. He was paid only $150 for the script. But apparently, after that, he started getting paid a weekly fee. Oh. Again, it sounds like it was not a big one, but apparently it was enough that Kaufman complained about it being too high. Oh my god. Troma and Kaufman himself are like, they're notorious for being tight with money. The reason Troma is still around is because they keep their budgets tight. So, like, 150 bucks for the script? He might have been overpaid. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe he was charging $1 script like The Terminator. Like The Terminator, yeah. that's right. Like, this is the kind of studio that would be buying, like, cheap stuff and, and paying pennies on the dime yeah. for whatever they could. Anyway, so Gunn rewrote an original draft of this script for Tromeo and Juliet and apparently he added stuff like Juliet being a stripper, Tromeo being a crack dealer, which were then taken out of the final script, although I don't know how much because apparently the plot of that film is that it's about a feud between quote-unquote porn sars. Oh my god. You know like Russian sars? Yeah. That was the term used. What is this film? I don't know. So like him adding a stripper and stuff like that, it seems like there were already other elements. It was in the realm of possibility. And it was actually, I could not believe this, it was actually rather well received. No way. Apparently it played at Cannes. <laughs> what? It has incest and porn stars. Was Kansas in like a dry period? What I was don't going know. On? I mean, do they take everything? Maybe they were super desperate this year. They were like, guys, we yeah. gotta increase They're like, the guys, viewers. it's 1997. There are no good films this year. What do we do? Tromeo and Juliet sounds excellent. Yes. He continued to work at Troma until in 2000, he wrote and acted in a film called The Specials. And this was his big break. So it was a superhero comedy, very familiar territory yeah. for James Gunn, directed by Craig Mazin, who went on to create Chernobyl the and The Last, Last of, of Us for HBO. Wow. Fascinating career. I want to talk about him at some point because he went from the scary movie and the Hangover franchise to Chernobyl and whatnot. And he also apparently roomed with Ted Cruz in university. What the fuck? But anyways, The Specials, his big break starred Rob Lowe, Parks 
Rack, Thomas Hayden Church, the Sandman oh from uh, Spider-Man 3, Judy Greer, who I mainly know from Archer, but I think she's done a lot of other work. Yeah, yeah. The specials was written in only two weeks. Joss Whedon apparently saw the script and noticed it. Wow. Peter Safran, who he works with a lot now, noticed the script. And the, the movie is about a C, I guess D tier, maybe even F tier group of superheroes on their day off. So it doesn't feature a lot of action or anything because it's low budget. Yeah. And it did pretty poorly. But there's a kind of asterisk there because it only made $13,000 at the box office. Yes. But it was more of a straight to DVD movie. Yeah. And I think it did okay, actually. That's what I hear a lot about these like very indie horror films is like the box office return isn't that much, Mm -hmm. but they make their profit back in DVD sales. Especially in this era. Uh, In 2002, things picked up even more when Gunn wrote the screenplay for Scooby-Doo. And then in 2004, two years later, he did the second Scooby-Doo and he wrote Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake. Whoa! Yeah! Weird connection there, and yes, we will eventually do Zack Snyder on this. I just gotta say, straight from the get-go, he's done, what, three things he's written, and he's already surrounded himself with actors, directors, producers, who have gone on to produce these massive superhero blockbusters who he will later, like, share the stage with. If there's one thing this whole thing says, it's just, like, James Gunn does networking. Yeah! The latter two, so in 2004 he had Scooby-Doo 2 and Dawn of the Dead, and that made him the first screenwriter to have two films top the box office in consecutive weeks. Wow. Around that time, he also met his now ex-wife, Jenna Fisher of The Office. Yes. Who features in Slither. We'll talk about that. Yes, we will. She directed a film that he actually starred in around that time. Then in 2006, when he was 40 years old, he directed Slither, which we'll discuss at length later. And then after that, he did a bunch of weird projects. Okay. He did short films for an Xbox Live series called Horror Meets Comedy. What? He did a web series called James Gunn's PG Porn. He was a judge on a show called Scream Queens, which had actresses competing for a role in Saw 6. Whoa. This was after he directed Slither. So like, it's not like he was desperate for work. I guess this stuff just interested him. Maybe he was just like, yeah, I made my feature directorial debut. Time to lay back for a year. So jumping ahead a bit, after a couple more directing credits, Gunn eventually landed on Guardians of the Galaxy, which is where I'm sure almost everyone has heard of him. Yeah. And Guardians was a smashing success for such an unknown group of characters. Gunn's experience directing like B-tier superhero stuff and comedies and horror really paid off. Apparently Joss Whedon really pushed to give him more creative freedom with the film. Oh. Apparently around that time was when Joss was still quite creatively involved with the overall MCU. Right. And Joss Whedon had seen his script for the specials and pushed him to make it like weirder and more James Gunn. Not long after that, Guardians 2 was released. It wasn't as loved as the first. I didn't like it as much as the first. That was primarily due to the fact that people felt Gunn had too much leeway with the writing. Which is interesting because it sounds like he had a lot of leeway with the writing in the first one too. Exactly. Who's to really say what the story is there. Now there is something kind of unavoidable when talking about Gunn around this time and that's his firing from Disney. Yeah, that was Um, huge. It was big news, right? Yeah. It feels like it was yesterday. It feels like it was not that long ago. Essentially what happened was that in 2018 after publicly criticizing Trump, a right-wing commentator named Michael Chernovich pointed out a number of tweets that Gunn had made between 2008 and 2012 that contained some pretty disgusting jokes. I'm not going to recount any of them here. I don't think they need to be dredged up. You can look up online. I'm sure there's enough articles. Yeah, like you can look them up. You don't really need to. The tweets were severe enough that Disney fired Gunn and they were then met with a whole bunch of complaints from people who have worked with Gunn or like generally knew Gunn. But not wanting to miss an opportunity, DC hired Gunn in October of 2018 
2018 to work on the Suicide Squad. Very smart marketing yeah. decision, yeah. Gunn wasn't actually reinstated at Marvel until almost a year later in like early 2019. Wow. I forgot that it was that long of a period too. I agree. When it was happening, I thought it happened over the course of like a couple of weeks. Yeah, same with me, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, like during that time, Guardians 3 was in like a limbo state. It was really odd. And there was a lot of back and forth at the time regarding whether the firing was justified or not. Again, I, I don't want to actually debate like the tweets and stuff like that. It's been yeah. done to death. You can judge for yourself. But Gunn apologized for them. He expressed a lot of regret. He said that he changed a lot as a person since then. And he also acknowledged that he understood why he was fired. Regardless, he is back and he is back probably bigger than ever. Which is crazy. He's yeah. back bigger than ever and he's back white hairder than ever. <laughs> he's like Gandalf the Grey died, came back Gandalf the White. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, yeah, he's back big time. Guardians 3 is coming out. It might already be out. I'm sure it's great. And he's also the head of DC Films along with his producer and longtime friend Peter Safran. Which is just a crazy turn of events. Yeah. Like, what a position to land. Like, the timing was really good right when DC was, like, falling apart. I know. And they needed a white knight. A white-haired knight. A white-haired knight. knight! I guess they just trusted him a lot because of his, I'd say, pretty positive feedback on the Suicide Squad and the Peacemaker TV show. Well, for sure. And also, like, he has experience in basically every facet of the industry. Like, he's been a writer. He's been in music. Yes. He's been an actor. He's been a director. Uh Uh-huh. So, like, he's a safe bet. Suicide Squad didn't do well, but it's a great film. To put things in perspective, it also released during COVID. Yeah. Gunn is taking on the screenplay and the directing for one of the big foundational movies for the new DC continuity, Superman Legacy. There's, like, new news coming about that every day. I also heard he's writing it. I don't know if Yeah, he's writing the screenplay and he's also directing it. Okay, yeah. I do think it's interesting. He talks a lot about how much he's changed over his career. Yeah. Like, after getting fired from Marvel, he said he did a lot of soul searching. It kind of, like, made him reevaluate his worth because before that, he was fairly obsessed with money and fame. Oh. And then after that, after he realized, like, how much support he had just as a person, that changed his whole outlook on everything. Interesting. He actually said that the Suicide Squad was the first film he had fun making. Wow. Because before that, he was always focused on nailing it for fame and stuff like that. But then on the Suicide Squad, after he realized he was in a pretty good place, like mentally and with his social life and everything like that, he had a better time making it. But to sort of pin the fact that he changed a lot, uh, I have two quotes here. Oh boy. That came up during my research. I just think they're really funny. So one of these quotes is from around the time of the specials and the other one is more recent. The older quote is, a movie is a giant machine to fuck up somebody's brain. And then the more recent quote is, movies aren't machines. They interact with our brains. (laughs) And if that doesn't encapsulate his shift as a person and as a filmmaker, those quotes are almost the same. (laughs) But they're also the opposite. (laughs) Listen, all I'm saying is, you know how there's a bunch of clone theories like with Avril Lavigne (laughs) and Paul McCartney? All I'm saying is, ever since he got that white hair, something's changed. That's true. That's true. But yeah, that is James Gunn, his career from writer to directing and also all the weird other stuff he did. With that being said, Vaden, let's just slip right into the discussion of Slither. I'm disgusted. Here we go.
What did you think of this film just starting off? I wasn't 100% sure what to expect with this film because I kind of went into it expecting it to be a spoof, a parody of old school monster horror films. For sure. Um, but what I actually found was a pretty sincere take. Almost a love letter to the horror genre of the 80s and 70s. Yeah, yeah. yeah like a pretty sincere homage pulling from all of the tropes and stuff. So to give an audience the summary, Baden, tell them about the film. Um, an asteroid carrying a high mind alien lands on Earth in a small town and infects a man named Grant. Its primary goal is to take over the world using worms that dig into people's brains. Slithering, slippery worms. Yes. And it turns them into zombie-like members of this hive mind. The only people standing in its way are Grant's wife, Starla, who the alien falls in love with, the police chief, Bill, who's in love with Starla, the asshole mayor, Jack, and a girl named Kylie who briefly mind-linked with the alien and learned of its plan. Together, they are able to kill the alien at its source and prevent the apocalypse. It's basically a monster movie, a zombie movie, and an alien movie in one hour and 30 minutes. Which is the funniest part about it, I think. Yeah. Because it is sincere. I think that this is not making fun of horror movies. I think it's coming from someone who really likes them. 100%, yeah. But at the same time, it's so funny because it starts out, you're like, oh, it's an alien taking over humans. Yes. And then it's a zombie film. But then the zombies start spitting acid (laughs) and talking. And so... Every time you see these monster movies, they usually have like one or two like key traits. And you can pretty much predict what they're going to do almost. Exactly, right? Like you'll have a mossy monster that throws vines and stuff like that. And it's pretty predictable. But with this movie, they just gave it all of the abilities. Like they just kept giving it more stuff that it was able to do. This is the strongest creature. The ultimate killing organism. (laughs) (laughs) And and obviously the characters are confused as well because it's like, what is its limitations? It's not even just its, like, weapon capabilities. Its plan has so many stages. Yeah. Here's the alien's plan for taking over the world in a nutshell. Infect a person. Get that person to kidnap another person and feed them a bunch of meat until that person pops, ejecting a bunch of worms, which will take over a bunch of people who will then merge with the original person in a giant goop monster. Yes. And that will just encompass the globe. But then you also have other people who you breed, and then you also just have other zombies. It's like you have like three classes of people. Ultimate monster, breeders, (laughs) zombies, and then just people he just sacrifices for no reason. It's probably the most complicated alien takeover the world plan I've ever seen. Because it just has the most nonsensical set of stages. Like, how has this alien ever successfully done this? Listen, I think this is why the alien got kicked off of its planet in the first place. Because it was just incapable of making plans and all the other aliens were like, oh god. It's like Venom. Isn't that a thing with Venom where he was like an outcast on his home planet? Yeah, And, and here's my thing about this alien, okay? You mentioned how when it breeds someone, everyone has this desire to eat meat, whether it's like rotten mm-hmm. flesh or just like raw chicken at the grocery store. Maybe that's why he got kicked off his planet because he didn't want to take over the world. He just wanted to host a group barbecue. He does seem like fairly unenthusiastic about taking over the world. Like he's putting in a half-assed effort. Exactly. Sure. He almost wants the heroes to win. Yeah, like he's pretty lazy. He's just kind of kicking back and like seeing what'll happen. Okay, you know how he breeds someone? He has like those two like mm-hmm. um, 
tentacles that come out of his chest that are like spiked. Yeah. When they initially came out of his chest, I thought they were just like raw spools of sausage <laughs> that he was gonna cook. Like he's a sausage manufacturer? <laughs> yeah. You know those machines where they like pull the sausages out? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, they yeah. Try them. You just thought he was producing sausages from all the raw meat he was eating? And listen, I must have been conditioned to believe this because the amount of times that Grant, when he gets controlled, says meat in this movie are unreal. Because when he says it, he has like this wide-eyed look and he does this like really goofy smile. Yeah, well, he's played by Michael Rooker. Oh my uh, God. James Gunn alumni, right? Yondu. He was in the Suicide Squad. I think this was the first time they worked together. One thing I'll say about him, he is high energy this entire production and he is very expressive. Very expressive. Very odd. Some of the acting choices are a little weird. Like (laughs) he has all these weird little phrases and sayings that he says, like killer, which is one of the ways that we learn as an audience that he still has intelligence. Yeah. It almost retains part of its memories. It does, yeah. Yeah. And I like that's interesting. And that's part of the reason why it falls in love with Starlock. So the alien attacks Grant, and the previous day he had an argument with his wife before he got taken over. And the alien kind of goes back home, and Starla wants to make it up to him. And so the alien like falls in love with him, I guess, because it's the first time he's ever been slept with. I guess so. And might I say, when he gets controlled, he goes into this woods because he's like, it's not really cheating. He's like, it is. It's an odd relationship that they have. Yeah, because he's like making out with her, but then he also goes to visit her, but then he's like, no, I can't do this. The implication is that he's not a very good husband. And like, there's an implication that she maybe married him for his money because he's quite wealthy. Literally every other character Michael Rooker has played has been dirt poor. That's true. Gone to Walking Dead. And this character does not carry himself like a rich person. No, he carries himself like a swamp trailer guy. He does. Even before he's taken over, he's like groaning and like hunched over. (laughs) And yeah, so they use the horror movie trope where like a couple go off into an isolated area to like make out. Yes. And then they get attacked or infected or whatever. And yes, we see the slug. It comes out of this egg thing almost. Mm -hmm. And the opening it comes out is very, what's the opposite of phallic? Because it looks very vaginal. Yeah, it looks very vaginal. It does, it does. Um, And it shoots up and we get this like weird CGI overlay. Did it not remind you when you were like in science class and the teacher shows you like those x-ray like educational videos? Because it's the only time anything like this happens in the movie but when Michael Rooker gets infected we get an x-ray shot of it going into his brain. Yeah, of his like organs his skeleton. Yeah, which I think we would have got the idea that it went into his brain without that. Let's talk about the cast for a second. Nathan Fillion. I didn't realize he was in this movie. No, I didn't. I mean, this was one of his more low-key roles, I guess. Yeah. But I have to say, he has the same kind of energy as Brendan Fraser for me. Yeah. Where he just has, like, a star power. He carries himself like a charismatic action actor. Yeah. So he's one of the four main cast that you remember. He plays Bill Party. He's the cop. And one thing I like about him is he's not, like, the typical horror hero mm-hmm. where he's, like, he knows exactly what to do. He's just as weirded out as everyone else. I know. It's great. I enjoyed him films where the characters are as confused as the audience are. I also like in this that he's he's surprised but he's also competent. The whole police force is actually quite competent. At the same time this movie uses horror movie tropes like the couple going into the woods and getting attacked and infected. Stuff like that. It also uses the trope of like the town mayor doesn't want to talk about the problem because there's like an event going on. Yes. So 
they do a lot of these classic tropes. Yes. But they also subvert them. I feel like in the classic horror movie, the police are incompetent. But in this one, they're actually good. They believe that it's a problem right away. Yep. They get on the hunt right away. They back each other up. Literally as soon as this girl who was there when he got infected, mm-hmm. it goes missing. The police go to Starla's house. They're like, have you seen Grant? We need yeah. to call him. There's no mystery about who it might be. They go to Grant like right away because yeah. they suspect him. They do end up failing, but they don't fail because of their own stupidity. No. They fail because the monster is smarter in that moment. Exactly. It, like it tricks them. Grant is able to outsmart them and like lure them to places and stuff like that. Like that is one of the tropes that they subvert. And I think it, it's really good. Yes. Like I enjoyed seeing the police officers working together, believing the witnesses and stuff like that. Another big name, Elizabeth Banks. That was shocking to me as well. Yeah. She is Grant's wife, so she has to play this, like, kind of more innocent character. She does action. She also, like, tricks him at the end. An interesting parallel is that of King Kong. Like, she's almost in love with the monster, almost. Oh, she even has the, like, white dress. Exactly. That's interesting. I never would have made that connection, actually. Let's talk about the effects real quick. Okay, so before we even talk about any of the specifics, I was just surprised how well they hold up. This movie does hold up basically every shot yeah there isn't a lot of cgi monster stuff except for the slugs yes those are entirely cgi and then of course there's grant he turns into this like tentacled fleshy slime monster looks incredible and there's people like coming on the sides like they're almost like grafted yeah yeah they're like merging into him fully practical i think it was actually michael rooker underneath all of it which it was good on him for being game because that looked uncomfortable as hell there's a funny moment in behind the scenes where he talks that he had to go see a masseuse really at the end of every day because the weight of the makeup on one side caused him to have like a tick in his neck oh really apparently it took him eight hours hours in the chair to get into the full makeup. They do a thing with his mouth where like the right side of his mouth is like teeth and fangs It and extends stuff. almost off his face. Like it makes it look bigger his head. Yeah. Another really good effect is we talked about this briefly how the police eventually fail and this is because Grant leads them to this barn mm. and they find Brenda the woman who he got infected with. Yeah. But this is the catch. Brenda has become this three meter high tall spherical person short stubby arms. You can't even see her legs. I, I'm gonna quote James Gunn when I say it's a boob and her head is the nipple. Yeah, literally. Um, those are his words, not mine. And she's swollen up because Grant captured her and has been feeding her all this meat. Meat, meat, meat. Yeah, and I will say when I saw that, it was scary. It I'll was. Be you know what else was scary? Genuinely, like, scary. Kylie, who is attacked by the slugs but manages to escape, she's hiding in this car and her family, who's all been infected, come out and surround the car. And you know, zombie movies do this a lot where you're like trapped in a space and then the zombies are all outside yes but what made this one different is they're intelligent so they're talking they're like calling her out they're trying to lure her out by pretending to be normal and the kid actor in that was really good she had the crazy eyes and that was another scary point because the slugs basically they get into your body through your mouth Mm -hmm. and they crawl to your brain Kylie she's in the family house her Mm -hmm. mom gets infected she vomits blood on her but we can hear the kids getting infected behind the doors that was actually 
actually chilling. For sure. Probably the scariest thing, and this is I thought was another really good effect, is actually revolving the mayor. This is what freaked me out the most. Oh, really? So the mayor gets trapped. He gets taken away by the aliens, and mm. he gets thrown into this basement. Mm-hmm. And the scene starts off. He has this lighter. He's trying to light it. And eventually he does. And you see all these townspeople with these pregnant, bulbous, blue bellies yeah. from the slugs, all eating these different carcasses. He's like, freaked the fuck out. He runs up the stairs and eventually the monster gets him and he gets thrown back down the stairs as well. Yeah. And there's this point of realization on his face where he like sees this human corpse yeah. and he starts eating the arm but he mm-hmm. like doesn't want to. Yeah. And I thought he really sold it well. He did. But then the kicker of it is Bill and Kylie they go into the house to rescue Starla who gets captured by Grant and the fucking mayor jumps out of nowhere grabs their leg and he has this bulbous egg coming out, out of his, his shoulder and he's like kill me and bill just caps him right in the head like no hesitation part of the reason why it works was they didn't know he was gonna be there oh really he scared them interesting so their expressions are actually real that's fantastic yeah this is a really well put together movie i have a lot of compliments for it like i couldn't pick out too much wrong with it actually i like again how sincere it is you know it's not making fun of horror movies although there are aspects of it that are there is certainly some comedic stuff in this. Did you notice? This was, I think, my favorite one because it's so small. You know the trope in horror movies where, like, a girl trips? Yes. Maybe this was a blooper. But they're going towards the house. Nathan is going with Kylie and she trips on nothing. There's nothing on the ground. It's a completely flat surface. They're not even running. They're, like, moving at a slow pace. It's a very short shot. And she just trips. (laughs) It could have been a blooper. I want to believe that that was them making fun of the falling over thing. Uh, Some other funny stuff. I don't know if you noticed this. This is when Grant goes to visit Brenda because mm. Brenda has an infant child. The child is in the crib and instead of playing with a toy, she is playing with a whole tomato. Really? Not sliced, <laughs> not cut. A whole tomato. Would it be better if it was cut? I feel like it's like terrible either way. I mean, it's not better. You know? No, it's not. Another funny thing is the concert, Dear Cheer. Dear Cheer, yes. It's basically like marking the open season for them to all go hunt. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about this for a second. They're all basically square dancing in like this small run town bar yeah they're all wearing these cheap christmas plush deer <laughs> antlers and it's like some sort of like midsummer hunting cult yeah almost. yeah and there's this one really funny scene where it, the mayor goes up he gives this speech of being like let's go kill those let's deer. get them deer and you just see this old guy hold up these authentic antlers <laughs> and use them to clap <laughs> and he holds them high above his head like he's summoning the deer no that whole scene was really funny because it's again i think a spoof on the whole the town's getting together to do something crazy kind of thing to get back to nathan fillion as well the the physical comedy in this movie is actually i think really great yeah there's some pretty good stunts nathan fillion gets slammed about a bunch like smashed through windows yeah there's one scene this is at the climax Mm -hmm. of the film where he basically has this grenade from the police station the funniest part in the whole movie for me (laughs) was this running grenade joke and he basically pulls the pin and this is the longest grenade that it's goes so, off. It takes like 20 minutes to go off. And he keeps trying to throw it at the monster, but it gets kept knocked behind like shelves and stuff and eventually like him and the grenade, they get pushed out through a wall and the <laughs> grenade rolls into the pool and blows up. The look on Fillion's face was just like so perfect. It captured it so well. There's a bit earlier when um Fillion's getting attacked by like a rabid dog. Oh, or yeah, is the, it a deer? It was a deer. It was yeah, a deer. Yeah. And Kylie comes up to save him with like a fire extinguisher and she's like it's the moment where you are 
over the monster and you say like a badass line. <laughs> yeah. But instead she just says, hey, motherfucker. <laughs> you couldn't come up with a deer-based pun? And that's funny too, because the deer even reacts like it's a person. Yeah. Like it tilts its It looks head, up, it's like, huh? Like it's having a conversation. It, it, you know, it, it would be the perfect place for, I'm trying to think of a deer pun. Hunting season's over. Yeah. And, but she just says, hey, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, same with the grenade bit. He pulls the pin on the grenade yes. and it's, he's about to throw it. And the second he pulls it and he's halfway through saying like his heroic badass line and it knocks it out of his hand. Really funny stuff. One other thing is that Grant has these, the two poker things that like implant into things. And once you're hit with both of them, that's when you kind of join the hive and get super hungry and stuff like that. Yes. Bill in the climax gets stabbed with one of them and it starts like injecting a fluid into him, like a white fluid. Yeah. But he manages to stop the second one from going into him. And that's how he ends up defeating the monsters. He he makes it swallow a bunch of like propane and yeah. then lights it on fire. And at the end, he's lying there and his wound is oozing. And Kylie kind of leans over and quietly goes like, you have to be hit with both of them for the main infection to happen. And it's like, even if it takes both of them to make him part of the hive, <laughs> I think it would be really funny and kind of appropriate for the movie <laughs> if he just died from an infection. Yeah. Like, you know, he gets up, he does his heroic walk out onto the lawn. <laughs> he falls back in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> he falls into the pool and then like he's just dead because that stuff was definitely toxic. It was, and that was a lot of it. It was also a huge spike. Uh, James Gunn is in the movie, briefly. That was crazy, because, like, James Gunn is just one of the teachers, and he's hitting on Starlock? He jump scares us. He really jump scares us. Like, I had a visceral reaction. Yeah, it's his only scene. But that being said, Vaden, how would you rate this film out of every time Michael Rooker says, meat? Meat. We need a final meat counter. (laughs) How many meats are said in this film? Honestly, I'd rate it, like, a solid 7.5 or an 8 out of 10 meats for me. I I agree. I'd maybe even push it to like an 8.5 because it's an hour and a half. If it was two hours it would drag. Yeah. Like really drag. I would say if you're a fan of James Gunn, if you're a fan of the horror franchise, and also if you just like any of the actors in here or you're interesting in just kind of body horror, especially if you like The Thing yeah. and different things like that, you know, it's a fun popcorn movie. Again, I have no complaints. It's entertaining. All of the actors are funny. I'm surprised that this isn't more of a cult classic. Because it, it has everything you could want, sincerely, plus more. But with that being said, I think we should get into behind the scenes and learn just how... To slither. <laughs> yes! Just how we slither. Here we go. Light on set! So to start off with pre-production, I'm going to actually tell you how Gunn got the idea for this mm-hmm. movie. And he got the idea for the movie seven years before the film actually got made. Interesting. So it was him and his brother eating dinner and discussing like their just love of horror and the genre. Yeah. And Gunn mentioned just that he wanted to direct one. Mm-hmm. In that moment, his brother, Sean, asked him out of nowhere as like a throwaway comment, what is like the scariest thing you could think of? And this vision entered Gunn's mind. A woman on her knees, a going through through convulsions, eyes rolled back to her head as this foot-long red parasite tried to burrow in her mouth, which is what happens to Kylie in the bathroom scene. Yeah, almost verbatim. And apparently that's like shot for shot. And a lot of the imagery I think he said was like a docked trout like flapping its like tail back and forth. And I think they were going out for fish, so that's why he thought of that. Uh, And interestingly enough, he was actually attached to direct another movie when he was writing this film. I think it was this extreme 
extremely low budget independent film. Okay. And he was actually writing the script for Slither, and he was considering selling the script off of Slither to another director. Then he started doing like the rewrites of mm-hmm. the script. And this is something that we talked about is the tone mm-hmm. being the balance between comedy and scary and how it was very unique, that aspect. It's difficult to nail. Well, he got frightened. He was like, I don't think another director could pull it off. Like, right. I know exactly how I want to do this. So he felt very comfortable directing it himself. Uh, so visual effects and practical effects are probably one of the most. They were so damn good. The post and also like the on-set physical stuff. Oh, yeah. The VFX and practical had this kind of a like anything that's too difficult for the practical people to do we will cover in the visual effects yeah like when the people are joining on to the mass at the end that was obviously practical but there's this bit where the one guy his forehead has nothing attached to it and then he goes in and as he pulls back his forehead is like attached to the body yeah i feel like maybe that was a, a cgi insert while the main part was like physical exactly and interestingly enough the film actually had a different title wiggle that is significantly worse. Like, as in the Wiggles, like That's... the Australian kids oh group. Oh my god. I mean, I don't know how well this movie did, but I feel like it would have done worse if it was called Wiggle. Yeah, the producers told James Gunn himself, you have to change the movie because Wiggle is not scary It's not sounding. scary enough. Do you have, like, the box office numbers and stuff? I will get to that in okay. a second, but before I do that, I want to tell you the budget of this movie. Oh, okay, yeah, let's hear it. $29.5 million. Really? And I think they used the budget pretty well. I wonder how much of that went to the cast. Because they were all established at this point. Like, Rooker was in stuff, Elizabeth Banks was in stuff, Nathan Fillion was in stuff. Let me talk about that. Oh, okay. To go into the cast, the film was shot in Vancouver, BC. Nathan Fillion was well known, Mm -hmm. but when you make a movie in Canada, you have to have a certain amount of Canadian actors, and Fillion got in because he was Canadian. Nathan Fillion is Canadian? Apparently. Okay, uh, cool. And so Nathan Fillion confirmed that one of the things that he really enjoyed about playing Bill was his bewildered and terrified what the fuck is going on with I loved that with Bill because he's so like confused and determined. Apparently when James Gunn saw his audition, he was like, that is what I pictured in my mind for Mm -hmm. Bill Party. So Gunn had Rooker in his sights from the get-go after Michael Rooker was in Portrait of a Serial Killer. Mm. And he was actually the only actor that he considered while doing the script. Mm. And Rooker actually took the role because he said, anyone who's like a fan of me Mm -hmm. means they're invested in my performance and they'll put in the trust in me to do like a good job acting and trust my decisions. Yeah, and I'm sure it helps that like Gunn has acted and directed and written. It'll be a good partnership. It won't be like Michael Rooker has to carry the whole thing like they'll be able to collaborate and then for starla gun was looking for what he calls a hitchcock blonde yeah yeah elizabeth banks was actually at the top of his list for the role so when she originally got the offer to do it she said no way like yeah there's there's no way i'm gonna do this i was really surprised to see her but then she got a copy of the script and she just saw like how much fun like picturing herself make it And she took the role. It would be pretty fun to film, I think. And that's like something, again, she says this, how much fun they had on set. Mm -hmm. Like, it almost feels like a very found family. Mm -hmm. So here's some smaller roles. Jenna Fisher, previously married to James Gunn, Mm -hmm. not originally part of the cast. The original actor in her role begged to be released from the movie as she had an offer to shoot, like, some pilot. So Gunn let him go. Originally, he was played by a male actor. Really? And rather have, like, a performer on set who didn't want to be there he instead called his wife up. And Jenna Fisher was apparently 
completely ecstatic. She always wanted to do a zombie movie mm. and be a zombie. And by the time the movie was released, this is an interesting fact. Jenna Fisher, she was very popular because of The Office. For sure, yeah. And she was the one who went on The Tonight Show to promote the movie. Interesting, because her role is small compared to the others. Yeah. So moving to on-set stuff, conditions on the set were far from perfect. It was two months of shooting in the night, in the dark, in the rain, and it was so, so cold. Everything pretty much happens in one evening, mm-hmm. so they had to be there for, like, the entire night, like, right. when it gets dark to when it gets light. Yeah, there's, like, no sunlight in the whole film. So you know that scene where Nathan Fillion meets Elizabeth Banks in, like, the balcony? Oh, at the party, right? It's about 20 minutes into the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Apparently it was so cold that James Gunn collapsed because he couldn't control his leg. <laughs> no Like, they way. were just freezing. Oh my god. They apparently praised, like, Elizabeth Banks for shooting it, like, only wearing, like, a dress. Yeah. Because everyone else was wearing, like, hunting gear and, like, jackets. Like, jackets and the, the denim jackets with the fur and stuff. But this is probably the biggest shocking fact. Okay. Remember how I said the baby was holding the tomato? Yeah. It has an explanation. So, <laughs> apparently he's been asked about the tomato, like, multiple times. Really? In the original script, Brenda tells Grant, because Grant, like, comments, like, why the fuck is the baby curled in the tomato? <laughs> and Brenda comments that tomatoes are cheaper than toys. And by that time, the baby is finished playing with it. The tomato is nice and tenderized to use in, like, a stew or something. First of all, what the actual fuck? If I was making food, I don't want, like, a baby's germ-filled hands and mouth covering a perfectly good tomato. Yeah, that is some classic James Gunn dialogue, though. Yeah. Because there are a lot of lines where someone says something that's just really weird. Yeah. And all the other characters go, the hell are you talking about? Yeah. That's like a James Gunn signature bit of writing. A hundred percent. Yeah. You remember when the group is going into town and then the they car get ambushed, crashes into yeah. them? So that was filmed on a night super cold. It was below zero. And right across the street from filming, I guess they couldn't close off the set, mm. was a group of Hell's Angels. Another biker gang. Holy shit. And apparently they pissed off the Hell's Angels quite a bit. And one of the bikers got a ticket for crossing a barricade into the production area. And he got like very fucking angry. Oh, no. And it just built and built until the point where they started shooting off fireworks to just fucking disrupt production. Holy smoke. <laughs> what is with these directors and running into motorcycle clubs? Yeah, I mean, in Mad Max, they use them. In this one, they definitely weren't <laughs> collaborating with the filmmaker. That sucks. And to kind of wrap up the onset stuff, this change was made for budgetary reasons. Uh, towards the end, you remember when Bill's sneaking through the police station, he gets attacked by the zombified deer? Yeah. The thing was actually supposed to be like this giant set piece mm. that encompassed the entire police set. Gun basically says because of like time and money, it slowly whittled away and basically that budget was more so put to the big grant monster at the end of the film. Which is a better place to put it, I think. Yeah, and he actually says this is his least favorite scene in the movie. When he gets attacked in the police station? He just doesn't think the deer looks good because it's like some like low quality rotting puppet. I did kind of think it was a dog. Yeah. I, did, I, I didn't catch that it was a deer. And he says that he actually was going to cut it, but the thing that saved that scene was Nathan Fillion just like slamming himself so hard into the floor making it look realistic. Right, yeah. I wonder if they'd cut that, like, would the implication just be that he easily went in there and got the grenade? I guess so. I like that it was kept in. So here's some Easter eggs. Ah, here we go. When they go down the street in the first shot of the film, Mm -hmm. you can see one of the buildings are R.J. McCready's funeral home. R.J. McCready is Kurt Russell's character in The Thing. There we go. And the mayor is named Jack McCready. Jack McCready, yeah. He's also a callback. And it's also kind of nice to see because James Gunn is obviously a big fan. 
fan of the thing. Yeah. And he got to work with Kurt Russell in Guardians 2. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah. So that must have been very, like, triumphant for him. Gunn gets actors. Yeah. He really does get, like, some big names. I don't know if this is true or not. I can only find one instance of this. But I needed to put this in because this was just so strange that I cannot include it. You know when they go to visit Brenda and she's in that barn? Yeah. Apparently it was owned by Buddhist monks who I quote, were obsessed with the Matrix. What the fuck? <laughs> so maybe they became Buddhist monks because they were so obsessed with it? This was in Vancouver. We could go and fact check this, Yeah, Kyle. let's go see. Let's go see these Buddhist monks. Better yet, let's join them and become like Neo. I mean, I would. If I could do a bloody split kick like Neo, I'd probably sacrifice a lot of years Mr. Party. Mr. Buddha. But to wrap things up, Eli Roth, who's one of Gunn's good friends, had this to say about the release of the film. Very strange quote. In 15 years, no one is going to be watching Ice Age The Meltdown. <laughs> Everybody is going to be watching DVDs of Slither. And I think this next part proves that if this is true or not. So the film had a budget of $29.5 million. It was a box office flop. Really? Failing to recoup its production budget, only making $12.8 million. Oh, that's that's a big loss, actually. And partially, I think, maybe it's because, like, the genre had kind of died out at that point. Right. I am surprised this did that badly. I agree. $12 million is, like, a major flop. People lost a lot of money on that. So to end off things, this is kind of a really nice story. Don Thompson, he plays Wally, one of the police officers. Yeah. He actually actually grew up on like Universal's classic like monsters and just the horror movies and he actually approached Gunn on the last day of shooting and he actually had tears in his eyes and he just thanked him for the experience of working on this movie. Oh that's nice. And he just said he was really happy just to play a role that he wanted to from his childhood. Well that's great like it's a good fairly high budget body horror classic film. Yeah. So like that's so awesome that he actually got to fulfill that dream. With that being said thank you so much for watching everybody. yeah thank you everyone for joining us we really hope you enjoyed this episode be sure to leave us a like a subscribe follow us at first film potty p-o-d-d-y on tiktok youtube and instagram and just as a reminder every other tuesday we post audio episodes on all your podcasting platforms so make sure to give us a follow then and during the week we also post full video versions of segments of the podcast as well as kind of shorts that are very funny to watch so please if you're interested take a look at those Absolutely. And we, we also really appreciate those of you who might share these with your friends. It is the best way to get new listeners. So please tell your friends, tell anyone who's interested in this sort of stuff. Absolutely. Should we give them a little hint on what the next episode's oh, going to be? Kyle, I guess I suppose we can give them a little hint. What's it going to be? In honor of the legendary Fast and Furious franchise, we'll be taking a look at Justin Lim's first film. So fasten your seatbelts for that fasten one. Fasten your buttholes. <laughs> and always, if you have any suggestions, any thoughts, or just general discussion, make sure to email us at firstfilmpoddy, P-O-D-D-Y, at gmail.com. If you'd like to have a debate about gun laws in Australia, there is a thread on one of our recent TikToks. <laughs> Feel free to join in there, chime in. I'm sure they'll really appreciate your input. <laughs> but with that being said, thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you in the next one.